You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. One of my favorite things I did in high school was I volunteer for the high school newspaper. There were many benefits to having this job, including a pub pass. You had a publication pass, which you could substitute as a hall pass because you know you need a hall pass to roam the halls in high school. And I used to always say, no, I'll just use my pub pass. And that meant I was on some sort of publication journey where I was, uh, well, never true, but it was, it was permission to roam about. And I liked that. I liked that freedom. Um, but I really did love writing for the paper. And I, I, I loved hearing from people, writing down what they said, and then framing it into a story, capturing the story, and telling the story. And I, I, I was the... Uh, I edited the soft news section. It's called the feature section. So we were never talking about anything very important, but there were still stories of people being told. So I wasn't reporting like the hard news from the administration, but you know, the, the, story, the people stories, that was the idea. And so the uh, high school mascot was a, was a falcon and the newspaper was called the Talon because you know, like the claw. And there was a, a feature called, this was uh, totally born out of high school. Uh, it was called Bird Droppings. And, and the idea behind the story was you'd go around with your photographer and you'd take pictures of students and ask them questions and then write down things that they said. And then you'd have like, oh, here's Molly from Ephrata's opinion about this matter. and and. and Effort I was in our district, but you get the idea, right? That, that, that was what was going on. Like in one case, the administration had banned certain kinds of hats during hat day. Now you can imagine the kind of hats that uh, would be banned in Lebanon County, and it was a little uh, racially motivated. And I remember I, I, uh, I asked the students, how did they feel about the administration flexing their muscles? That was a that that feature was cut from the paper for some reason, because it was kind of a Kim Jong Un situation as far as the as far as the state media went. As far as I was concerned, you can imagine how much trouble I got into high school, but it was really great. Um, loved doing it, but I really did like crafting the story, and, and and I didn't just like reporting the facts, and no journalist does. They like to tell the story. I think we have this delusion in Western media, consumers of Western media, that the, that the media delivers us objective information. Maybe you don't have this delusion, but um, it's at least told you. You should have it if you're reading it, right? That's what they tell you. And we have this idea that objective facts with no interpretation is somehow better than offering a guiding framework. Like you're supposed to just receive facts about the world in some general, unassembled way and come up with your own narrative and your own meaning. I think that's a complicated um, issue on its own. And it's a complicated problem in journalism because you're trained not to opine. You're not supposed to give your opinion. But you should give it enough in order to actually write a story. 
because you need a framework and a narrative. And so assembled facts on their own don't tell a story, or at least don't tell a very good story. And assembling them in a certain way does. We're taught this in a journalism school one year at Temple before I, before I changed my major. Um, the inverted pyramid. Anyone, do you guys know what this is? Have you seen this before? This is a, it's an upside down triangle and it's a hierarchy of information so that your editor does not have to consult you when he or she needs to save column inches in the paper and your story ran long, which mine always ran long. And so the editor could just cut the bottoms of the, uh, of the story and then fit it in because there's uh, the main facts and then more detailed quotes, etc. And then you can cut away things that you don't, that not necessarily you don't like, that just don't fit into the, it fit into the, uh, the broadsheet, right? That was, that was the idea behind it. Some of you wish you could cut the sermon down a little bit too, but guess what? There's no, there's, there's no, no, there's just, there's no sheet, you know? We don't have to fit it into a piece of paper. I am trying to honor a time slot, so I'm going to move on. But there is discernment rooted in this, right? There's, the, there's a discernment rooted in object, objectivity, right? The, the writer is prioritizing what's important, so there's direction, there's discernment, there's framing that happens. And, and, and when you, as a reader, consume the story, you read the story, and you discern the writer didn't tell us the most important thing in the lead sentence, in the, in the first sentence of the story. We call that burying the lead. You put it later on in the story for some reason, or even the second paragraph for some reason, and you can kind of see this happening depending on how, um, in which way the publication is biased. Let's just say it like that. And so we have an idea of what's important too, so we're interacting with the... Uh, with the story as well. All of this to say, even though we try to objectively frame stories, that framework in itself is not objective in the strictest, strictest sense of the word. It's, there's a bias there. There's a philosophy that precedes how we organize facts. There's a philosophy that exists before we think we should even gather facts. And one of our issues today is an increasing um, what I would say, prioritization of representing all viewpoints objectively and thus deteriorating some of our moral character because the media stops short sometimes of even calling the most heinous acts immoral for fear of being biased, right? There's something about that that's wrong in my view. And that's, not, that's just an aside really to what I want to get to, but I want to say that how we frame the story really matters and why we frame it really matters. You know, I'm not suggesting the news media is wrong in its attempt at objectivity, but it is necessarily biased. And every news outlet, even the driest of them, are specializing in telling you a story. And they're doing so with you in mind, depending on whether with their audience in mind, they have an idea. And cynics among us say, that's because they want to increase circulation and get more clicks. I think that's true, but I think they also want to tell a story. I think there's something to that. And crafting a story to journalists and to historians, I might add, is as important as delivering the facts. And we see this all the time today. Have you ever read a memoir where the author will tell you 
the order of the events in this memoir have been changed in order to make the story easier to tell. Have you ever read this? Usually the beginning or the end? Because they're writing a story. Their, their memoir became a book. And so it has to make some sense. And unfortunately, your life as it's chronologically organized is not a book. And we have to, they're writing a book. That's the idea. You following how it's working? It's a different uh, medium. People tell stories and they retell stories. And I'm sure you've told the story differently a number of times without ever thinking you uh, were lying particularly, right? There are dozens of ways to frame the facts of the matter, and we do so with an intent and an audience in mind. So, so storytelling then is an art form by itself. The Bible writers are engaged in this art form, doing their part to tell the story of God through God's people over time. It's really not unlike this very interesting um, Picasso's work on Velazquez's. So you have Velazquez here, and then 200 years removed is Picasso's impression of what Velazquez drew. And you can see that both of the paintings have a lot of similarities, but are also very different. He's tracking with all the, all the uh, similarities and differences that are happening here. There's a basic, and this is kind of how reporting works. This is also kind of how the Bible works. You know, you have a basic idea that's told in a number of different ways. Same painting, but seen in a totally different way. And I think that we're participating right now in, t in, in, in painting that painting. And it might look as different as these two. I think we have a problem when we read the Bible, and I'm going to talk about the Bible for a while, because we believe this myth that historiography and journalism offer us objective truth. The better they are, the more objective the truth is. And we've idealized that framework. And for some odd reason, even though we think it's ideal for our time and place, we've projected that idea on ancient storytellers, that they should somehow be telling the story the same way that we would now. Now, that's a little... Um, Self-centered, I would say, because that isn't, this is not how stories have been told since the beginning of time. And I want to assure you that we do the same thing today. We try to trick ourselves into thinking that we aren't crafting a story, or we might try to do that, that we're just reporting the facts, but we're really telling the story, right? The books of Moses, first five books of the Bible, tell, often tell the same story of Israel's origin and early history. You really see this between the first four books and then Deuteronomy. And they're different depending on who the writer is. And we see the same thing happen in the Gospels. These are the first four books of the New Testament. They're all Jesus' biography, and they all tell the story of Jesus in different ways. In fact, an early church heretic tried to combine all the Gospels in one mega-Gospel, and they said, no, you can't do that. They're different. They're different for a reason. You know? And, and there, there's something to that variety that doesn't need to be synchronized. And that can be a stressful concept if you expect everything to match up in some modernistic way. And it can make you insecure about what is true. But rather than think of the Bible as true or not, imagine it like a story or like a song or like a memory that's delivered to different people in different ways. If I wrote a song about my wife, for example, I don't think you would ask me, is that song true? I think you would offer maybe a different question, or think about it in a different way, right? Something different is happening, right? We're thinking about the Bible in a different way. 
In my opinion, one of the most explicit examples of how the Bible writers can tell stories differently is in their telling of the history of Israel. The first version of this history is sometimes called the Deuteronomistic history, and it's roughly Joshua to Kings in the Hebrew Bible. Now, in the Christian Bible, in the middle of this, they inserted Ruth because Ruth is the story of David's mother, and that goes between, that goes right before Samuel when we get to David. In the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is later on because her story is solving a different problem. And so they're telling the story differently. We can get into the specifics of why that happened later. But this is the history, the first version of the history of Israel. So this section of the Bible is in the former prophets in the Hebrew Bible. And Martin Note, a German scholar, calls it the Deuteronomistic history. This section of the Bible here um, is telling the basic story of Israel from the period after liberation from Egypt in the Exodus until Babylonian captivity. It stops in Babylon. And so it's hard to get through. It's very repetitive. They could have used their own editor to cut some out. Um, it has a lot of stories with which we are familiar even beyond our Sunday school context, if you grew up in a Sunday school that taught you lessons from the Deuteronomistic history for some reason, um, right? David, David and Bathsheba, David and Goliath, Sansom. These are the stories that come up. Sansom and Delilah, right? These, these are the things that are coming up in this. Yes, you know these? Samson. And so it has vibrant stories but stories that also highlight the, um, and, and, and I, I want to tread carefully here, the anger, the wrath, and the retribution of God. And the violence is writ written about, the story is written for God's honor, right? When the Philistines that David defeats mock the God of Israel, they dishonor God. And so David, David's defeat humiliates them back. His young age, his short stature, symbolize the tininess of Israel and the might of its foes, which makes Israel special in its puniness, its relative irrelevance to the political world of the day. God uses the smallest among us. Now, I don't want to get too much into the details here, but you can imagine why a writer of Israel's history would make Israel's military conquests seem very extravagant, right? Because it is a relatively small nation, relatively small player among these warring empires. The stories have retributive theology. What does that mean? It means God's pouring out wrath to people that disobey, or are disloyal. And it also means that God's pouring out love to people who are loyal. Honor and shame, major motif here. All over the Old Testament, it's a major motif, but very much so in this section. God acts with retribution, not just when God's people do something wrong, but because evil action dishonors God. The violence of, of, of God in the Old Testament makes it hard, especially if you approach the Bible from a certain point of view that requires the text to be congruent or fit together in a way that perfectly lays out who God is, right? That tit-for-tat theology 
is undone fundamentally in the New Testament, for one, right? John 9, there's a blind man. The disciples ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And he said, you're asking the wrong question. This was done to bring about the glory of God. The glory of God being brought about is the enduring theme throughout the Bible, not retribution. And so we learn something new about God when we look over the meta-narrative, so to speak. Go back to the painting. There's something bigger going on than the details in each one. The basic story of Israel is, 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 is this movement from a period of judges to a period of kings in the United, in the, in the United uh, Kingdom of Israel. Uh, Saul, David, Solomon, and then a divided kingdom because of some political conflict, then the conquest of both kingdoms, the north and the south, then captivity, and they end up in Babylon at the end of the DH, as I'm going to call it from now on. So I want to make a note that historic, the, these histories are a commentary on what happened. And the final composition happens during Babylonian captivity. We were just singing that song a few weeks ago when we were singing by the rivers of Babylon, right? How do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? That's the period of time that the final composition of the DH came about. And so what we, the, 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 the recipients of this final uh, composition are receiving it in the punished period. And so they're trying to make sense of the problem that they're in, and they're concluding, no, it's because of the sins of our kings that were in Babylonian captivity. But it's conceivable that Babylon is evil too, and God will save us in the same way that God is punishing us. And so there's something happening there that makes sense to the people receiving it. The writer of the DH still condemns Judah to Babylonian captivity, even after Judah repents. Judah is the southern kingdom. And so there's the retribution. It explains the circumstances that they're in. And it's why it's important to not only know the history of the events, but the history of the writing. Composition really matters. And when you see biblical historiography and also today's journalism as a product of its time, it moves from becoming a... Uh, it becomes a primary source on its own. It's telling us something about the writers themselves and not just the history. And so this theme of retribution, though, is not final. As I said before, it's, done, it's, 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 it's undone in the New Testament, but it's also undone in the Old Testament. In Ecclesiastes, for one, but also when the chronicler, First and Second Chronicles, which is the conclusion of the Hebrew Bible, the last thing they have to say in the Hebrew Bible is Chronicles. The Christian, the Christian Old Testament leads to Jesus. So that's why we composed it the way that we did. Hebrew New, uh, Old, uh, the Hebrew Bible really doesn't do that. It's doing something else. And here's why. Chronicles is telling another story about Israel. And this time, Israel's in a much more positive light. Even the sins of the kings aren't dealt with as harshly when the chronicler is writing about them. And I believe the chronicler is writing this new history of Israel with the DH in her hand. The chronicler knows the story that's been told about Israel for thousands of years. So she is conscious of telling another story altogether, and that's okay. Talking back. 
telling a different, the different take on the same story. When we allow the Bible to have that sort of dialogical quality, some tensions are lowered. And we can talk back too. Some people want to throw the whole thing out because of these apparent contradictions. But not so with me. If you read the Bible like it's a story written by God's children, it becomes a little bit easier with the inconsistencies. They are intentionally inconsistent. They are telling different stories to different people. The chronicler is writing a much different even biography of David, King David, than the writer of 1 and 2 Samuel. The chronicler excludes the worst stories about David and adds better stories. And this isn't to whitewash the history of King David. It's to create a vision of hope for the future of what David might have been and what a new David, a new king, could be. And so it's a theological work as much as a historical one, just as First and Second Samuel are too. And the audience isn't unconscious of the differences between the two narratives, and they don't try to clean them up. They let them go because the story is still a story of people, of a dialogue, of a tribe. It is a lot. Here are these things, like these paintings. And it's important for our purpose. Now, I tell you this story because it feels like my story. And it feels like my story because I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm in this great tradition. I also have to tell you that the general place that these stories happen is very close to me personally. And so I'm connected to these people in a, uh, not just in a spiritual sense, but also like in an existential sense. And so this feels like connected to me, even as an Egyptian, right? I'm close, I'm close to this. It feels close to me. But for our purposes, they're interacting, they're having a dialogue, but they're also telling a story that's unique to their time and place and to their audience. And they have no trouble crafting a story that's unique for their purposes, and they don't have a problem with doing that. These days we fight each other over who has the right story instead of seeing where we're coming from. Like you hear a version of a story and you counter it. Maybe tell the story a few different times in your mind. Now, I don't just mean this in the global sense. I mean this interpersonally. When you're having a conflict with someone, retell the story. Maybe from their framework, maybe from someone else's framework. And keep seeing it differently to work towards some commonality. Instead of condemning your, your opponent or even calling them that. I don't want us to just understand that the people in God's story are telling it differently, even though I think that's important. I want us as a community to imagine how are we going to tell the story in our time and place? Circle of Hope at large has a way it wants to tell the story. It's not a very well realized way, in my opinion. So we're not very good at telling our whole story to the region yet. and it's hard because it's a big place. We have, we're organized in a way by congregations, but also by cells that allows a specific telling of God's story to happen. And it happens through you, the story that you're going to tell. How God has moved you, you share that story. But then you also think, what are the needs of the people around me? What are the needs of people right now in this region, in this neighborhood? How do I tell the story in a way that helps them see God? Right? If you're talking to them like they're uh, 
Judahites and Babylonian captivity, and you're just telling them that story, why would you do that, right? It's not the same. It's different. And so we frame it in a way that helps them make sense. And even my, my attempt here was to frame this big story in a way that works for us. So the question for us to answer is, what do, we, what, what, what do people need to hear, and how can we share it with them? The best part and the advantage we have is that we aren't just creating an us and them. We're the ones we're talking about. And so imagine yourself, maybe as a way of preserving your faith and holding on to it. What's the story you need to hear about God? How do you hold on to your faith? How do you need to hear it? Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.